This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Lena. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and give us five stars on iTunes. We're talking about demons again. The sons of God and Nephilim. That's what we're talking about. Talking about demons. Yeah. So are people giving us five stars? Uh, We just got another We keep asking. Yeah. Was it a positive rating? That's the thing. Is there, is there, are we asking incorrectly? Because we're not getting more ratings. Well, based on one people person, are listening. We do, we're not humble enough. So that's why yeah. maybe we can more humbly ask them. I don't know. Yeah, guys, would you Let's please get back to Nephilim. Oh I, I tried to. Yeah, you going, tried to, and then I took, a, took us astray. So Anyhow, why we are we talking, are talking about the Nephilim? about demons. And last time we talked about their existence, <laughs> uh, we talked about the biblical terms and also the various theories on what demons are, um, which I find that one interesting. But today we're going to continue on. And with that, though, we're going to talk about, well, the sons of God and Nephilim as kind of an excursus because it's a necessary excursus. Um, so we, we have to, uh, so yeah, let's do Sons of God in Genesis 6. We have to deal with this in demonology um, because it's a question that often comes up and people ask the question, you know, what are the Nephilim in Genesis 6? And there is a myriad of thought and theory as to what the Nephilim were, um, but the answer is tightly connected to where you land on the Sons of God question. Um, you know, so what, what were they, who were they? Um, and so we have to first answer that question. And there are three main views on this, uh, that we're going to give to you. And so we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a problem solution approach, which is what you call it. I call it a weakness and strength approach. Same thing. Um, should we read the passage to of Genesis six? Yeah. Cause some people might not know. I don't care. Sure. I don't suppose you have that passage open yet, Lena. Not that you were expected to, because I can read it. Do you have it open? I do. I have it open. Oh, All right. Well, then you can. All the way down to verse, through verse four. We're just a, well, oil oh machine. Gosh. Five stars, people. <laughs> Five stars. God's grief over humankind's <laughs> wickedness. When humankind began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humankind were beautiful. Thus they took wives for themselves from any they chose. So the Lord said, my spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely. Since they are mortal, they will remain for 120 more years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also after this, when the sons of God were having sexual relations with the daughters of humankind who, were, who gave birth to their children. They were the mighty heroes of old, the famous men. So that's from the Net Bible. Boy, there's mm-hmm. a lot of interpretation going on in that one. They, now they interpret it rightly, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so All right, so that's... When we're talking about the sons of God, that's what we're talking about. And 
Um, it is a much discussed section of Genesis and very fascinating. And because of our view on it, it belongs to demonology, right? Right. So there are three views. You want to give the first one? Yeah. Um, so the first view that is out there would be that they're despots um, or warlords from the Canaanite or Canaanite. Um, that's hard to say. Canaanite. Because yeah. you're used to saying Canaanite, or at least Canaan, I am. Yeah. Yeah. So from the line of Cain. Uh, so, the, in other words, you could call them dynastic rulers. And and there's some strengths, and that's all we're going to do. We're just going to give you strengths and then weaknesses of each view. Um, there is some evidence, uh, not a lot, but some, uh, that magistrates are at times called uh, Elohim, which is that word gods in the Old Testament. An example would be in Exodus 22.8, they translate it as judges. Um there's a similar story in the Babylonian story of the flood that speaks of a rise of powerful judges. And then you got the ancient Near East uh, writings. Kings are considered sons of gods or deities. Therefore, it's simply an idiom that was clearly understood by the people during the time of the writing. And they would say, oh, these are just powerful rulers, warlords of some type, and we would call them sons of God. Yeah. So that's the strengths. What are weaknesses? Um, well, number one, there's no evidence at all that um, in in the text that there was a system of kings and powerful judges during this time. None. Um, because they just weren't there. Yeah, no, it doesn't show up until uh, much later. Yeah. Um, and there, there's certainly no mention of Cain's lineage having some rise to a ruling power nope. either. Um, second, if it is speaking of judges or kings or magistrate or something, then... It, it would be the first occurrence of that fact. And so it seems strange that it would be in such an indirect manner, just kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, so it, it just, it, it, it's a strange flow of the text if you read it that way. Um, third, there's absolutely no archaeological information that would support the idea um, that the actual term here, the phrase sons of God was a term that was borrowed from writings of that time period. Um. And then fourth, there's no textual evidence within the context that, and this is the important one, that that these were a unique subgroup of humans that were simply very powerful or feared. There's nothing in the text itself right. that indicates that, in other words. Um, and this view does not explain why the offspring of this union, whatever this union was, were so powerful or renowned or mighty. Right. And you know, so so this is one of those where they're backing into the text, their meaning, but they're not looking at the text and pulling out from it in any real way. So, yeah, um, yeah fably, not not good. <laughs> so, the second view, you want to do that or me? Sure. So, there were, um, um, the second view is that um, the sons of God are, is a reference to the godly line of Seth, um, Seth's godly lineage, in other words. Um also, the an implication, though, of that is that if the sons of God are from the godly line of Seth, then the daughters of men in that passage are then said to be the wicked line of Cain. Right. And so, it gets into this whole mishmash of ideas that there arose two lines, yeah. uh, the, the godly lineage of Seth and the uh, ungodly lineage of Cain. Unfortunately, the big problem with that one is that Adam and Eve had tons of other sons and daughters, and... Wh right. Who are they? Right. Yeah. Are were they godly? Were they ungodly? Yeah. Yeah. So but, questions like that. So what what would be some strengths on that view? 
Um, so, first of all, there are some arguments for it. The concept of a godly line is obvious uh, from Genesis 4.26. Um, do you have that one? Can you bring that one up? That's one we should actually read. And a son was also born to Seth, whom he called, who he named Enosh. At that time, people began to worship the Lord. Yeah, so you've got this, uh, at that point, you have this group of people who then begin to call upon a God. Um, you got God's electing work among mankind at times is linked with the language of sonship in the Old Testament. Um, and we're not going to quote all of these verses. You can uh, get them from the show notes now that we have our website. So make certain you go to, it's called faithfable.com, right? That's right. Not faith and fable, just faithfable.com. Dot com. That's right. And all of the show notes are there. Um, there's also warnings throughout the Pentateuch against mixed marriages. Uh, so that's another argument people make. And then the view prevents what is viewed by some as simply a monstrous view that speaks of, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what I always think when I right. read. Um, a monstrous view that speaks of fallen angels having sexual relationships with uh, humans. It's, it's, they're like, that's, that's just twisted and weird and sick and fantastic, so we're going to read it in from a more naturalistic perspective. So right, yeah. that's that's the strengths. Yeah, okay. so weaknesses then of that is the concept of a godly line is not obvious in chapters 4 through 5. Um, it's just, it's not. Right. Um, 426 says people started to call upon the name of the Lord, but does not say and therefore, this godly line rose up or right. something like that. Yeah. No so, indication. So, it's the closest you get, but pretty far. Um, what is obvious, though, however, from chapters 4 through 6 is that the sinful nature of man is abundantly manifest. Yeah. Um, it is also clear from Genesis chapter 5 and verse 4 that, as you said, Adam had many other sons. Yeah. Um, so, these are elements that you, ha you, know, you have to consider. It, it's not just this clean two lines. That's it. It sounds really good until you start looking at the text and then you're like, wait. Yeah. Um, the Second, the argument for the Son of God to be referring to the godly line of Seth or Sethites is more a result of a theological system that originated with Augustine, yeah. who was then the preeminent early proponent of this view, which then was picked up by Luther and Calvin, good Augustinians. Right. Um, so, if you know Augustine, uh, he argued for two cities or societies that have always occurred in humanity. Um, you know, the cities of God, the cities of man. Right. Um, so, there's those who love God and those who love self, in other words. Um, this is also picked up in covenant theology with the idea that of, of the people of God. Um, so, again, it, it sounds good, but when you examine the exegetical evidence, it's lacking. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the key thing is you're going to have a lot of people who hold to uh, this view, but it's a theological view. It's not born from an exegetical basis. Right. Uh, but there's more, right? There's uh, it, it, explain, it fails to explain how the term sons of God can be used in such a unique way because no other time in the Old Testament does it ever refer to humans, yeah. ever. And, and that's important because... The first time it gets used, it doesn't mean what it's how it's used in the rest of the Old Testament, and yet there's no explanation as to why all of a sudden this becomes a unique reference to the lineage of uh, of Seth. 
Also, the idea of sonship is clearly a theme in the Old Testament, but never does that theme extend to the degree that they're called sons of God. Yes, they're mm-hmm. sons. Uh, Israel is called his son, but um, it, it never goes beyond that. It never says sons of God or something like that. So, again, it's the only time, and therefore, to accept a unique rendering of this um, phrase requires strong exegetical basis, and there's just simply nothing there. Very strong. Yeah. And very clear from this text. Yeah. Because it is the exception, and so you'd have to, you know, the burden of, of proof would be on you to then explain why. So, the third view then is our view, and this is the monstrous view, but they, they were the fallen angels, which is why we're dealing with this under the auspices of uh, demonology, right? Right, right. So, you want to give the strengths? Yeah, so some strengths of this view is, well, number one, it is the, it is the oldest view in both Jewish and Christian writings. Um, so, in, until the rise of Augustine's, the city of God, it was almost, without exception, the only view. Yeah. Um, so, it's the ancient view. There, there's historical precedent here within the tradition of the church um, and Judaism as well. And it wasn't until, like you said, Augustine, and he was strongly influenced with Platonic thought yeah. and that dualism. And if you don't understand that, then you don't understand why he wrote what he wrote and and how he developed that whole two-city right. theology. Um, the second strength is the phrase, sons of God, is only used of angelic beings in every other occurrence in the Old Testament. Uh, so, you got Job 1, 6, 2, 1. Um, you know, there Satan is is among the sons of God presenting themselves to right, God. Right, right. Um, so again, to take a, a different understanding of the term requires substantial exegetical data. Um, and so, as we said, the burden of proof is on those to take the, who take a different position to prove why it can't be referring to angelic beings. Right. Um, when every other passage, right, it it's speaking of spiritual or angelic beings. Right. Yeah. Um. Third, it appears that there's a connection between this ungodly alliance and the presence of the Nephilim. Um, so, in chapter 6 and verse 4, you you have that the sons of God were on the earth, and then it says, and afterward, um, meaning in reference to the flood. Um, right. So, so not only were, were they on the earth pre-flood, but also post-flood. Um, so, the, the term Nephilim, it, 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 just lexically, it is hard to... Define. Which is why they just leave it as Nephilim. Untranslated, yeah. (laughs) Um, But the bulk of the data indicates that they were were giants. Um, So, Goliath potentially is one of them. And there's a myriad of passages. And again, you can get those in the show notes. Um, Third, how how could mixed marriages produce such an offspring? Um, It's just a question that's, you know. Yeah. So, the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth supposedly are now producing... Giants. Giants. Mighty men, men of renown. Yeah. Um, and then fourth, this fits with the new, the passages in the New Testament that speak of, of spirits in prison. First Peter 3.19, um, you got angels that sinned. Second Peter 2, 4 through 5, angels who did not keep their own domain. Jude 6. Um which in Jude 6, it talks about them going after strange flesh. Yeah. 
Um, so, so it fits well with the idea of fallen angels. It's very interesting to listen to the people who do not hold to the sons of God being angelic beings, fallen angels. Um, when I've, I've searched out a few of them and saw how they dealt with those three passages. And it's just fascinating that they, they're like, we don't know what these are really referring to. And it's because it can't mean what Genesis uh, 6 is talking about. And so they're like, we're, we're really don't know. And I'm like, or you could go to Genesis 6 and just let the text say what it says. But alas. Again, someone needs to get a PhD. Yeah, no, I'm not getting a PhD. <laughs> um, no, I mean. Oh. <laughs> you you got to come up. I mean, there's only so many theses out there, right? Oh. So you got to. Yeah, that's true. Um Fifth, angelic beings, when they appear on earth, are always males, never female. Um, you know, they're also seen as young men. Um, they're they're known for their strength. We see that in Psalm 103 and verse 30. Uh, also, they don't simply appear to be physical, but rather they truly are able to be physical and be physically seen and touched. Um, they also eat and sleep. We see that in Genesis 19. Yeah, do they sleep in heaven? I mean, they're, we don't know. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, so they're they can always take on human always, but never a female. Always a male, yeah. and always a very strong, powerful uh, male. Yeah. So let me give some of the weaknesses that people give, and then we'll respond to those. Since we don't agree with these weaknesses, uh, first of all, whenever studying this issue in the commentaries over and over again, you'll come across those who see this view as simply too mythical. Um, or monstrous, um, so they simply dismiss it out of hand, which is humorous because many of them have no problem accepting the fact that a serpent was talking to Eve. And they're like, well, yeah, that's what it says. I'm like, but. Uh, so understand that when you're reading the commentaries, they're not necessarily that helpful. Um, they're just rejecting it out of hand. Uh, but those who reject a view see first uh, the, see, the first two points we gave as being assumptions without any merit from Scripture. And so they they just simply discard them. They say that the third point is not consistent with a date throughout the Bible regarding um, angelic vi visitations. But the most common argument against this view from Scripture is not from the text. Um, in other words, when they're arguing against this view, they'll bring up some minor points uh, that they quibble over, but this is the thing that they all go to. Um, it's from Matthew twenty two thirty, and that is that angels can't marry. Um, and so, let me read that. Um, in Matthew twenty two thirty, Christ said, "For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven." So, what do we do with that? First of all, uh, it's important to notice from the text, what it does say, and also what it doesn't say, right? So, the only realm in which marriage does not occur is where? I'm asking you. What is this, a Bible study? Yeah. <laughs> Golly. In heaven. Yes, in heaven. Jesus! <laughs> no, no, see, you're wrong. Um, no, yeah, it's only in heaven. So, he, he's, he's not saying that there is no marriage that occurs. It's just that in heaven, angels are not given to marriage. It doesn't say they can't marry or are unable to marry. Uh, it's just simply they're not given. And we certainly do marry here in this realm in on earth, and there's no reason to believe that an angel uh, appearing as a strong male, always being actually physical, 
able to eat, able to sleep. There's no reason to believe that they're not actually sexual beings. But um, but the point in the and the point is is they're not getting that though from Genesis. 6. No, they're they're having to go to other passages, right? And the New Testament to right. try and figure out what it has to be saying. So, bottom line, that's our little excursus in demonology. Um, when, when you come to that passage, we think it's an important passage because it does show, uh, when I teach from it, I, I try to argue that it is part of Satan's effort to destroy the seed because the promise of his destruction is going to be through the seed of the woman. And so by essentially destroying the human race through a, dis- what, what's the word? I'm saying disruption, but... Defilement. Defilement, that's the word. Thank you. Uh, That's why we have you here. Um, Defilement of the human race, then the seed no longer poses as a threat. So we hope that was of interest to you. It's a strange one, but we like it. Yeah, well, that's one a lot of people always have questions on too. So so next time we'll finish out demonology, and then we'll be done with systematic theology one. And Lord willing, after that starts... Two. Um, so with that, though, we'll, we'll finish out by talking about some of the activities of demons, uh, demon possession and exorcism, um, and as well as their final fate. Um, but until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation, let us know what you think the sons of God were, and don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. <laughs>